We are talking about Samson today. He is found in the Old Testament book of Judges from Judges 13 through 16. And of all the bad boys of the Bible that we have looked at for this summer series, and we're finishing it out today with Samson, Samson is the baddest of them all. The baddest by far. Truly was a man who was wanted dead or alive. So as we learn about Samson today, as we explore his life, I want you to be keeping something in the back of your mind. As you're hearing about Samson and and just learning about him, here's the question I want to be kind of in the back of your brain. Why did God choose this man? Why did God choose Samson? Okay, so just lock that in the back of your brain as you're hearing this stuff this morning. Because um, Samson truly was the baddest of all the bad boys. Interestingly, though, he didn't start out that way. He didn't start out as this bad boy. In fact, he started out quite the opposite. We read in Judges chapter 13, as we're introduced to Samson, uh, he was actually the product of two parents who were having trouble conceiving, having trouble getting pregnant. And uh, what happened was, uh, they were actually visited by an angel of the Lord. And this angel came to them, and look what the angel said in Judges 13, 5. It said to Samson's mom, You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Wow, so this is quite a cool beginning. This angel comes and announces his birth. And we we hear, okay, so this guy Samson, he's going to be dedicated to God from the very beginning. And he's going to be a Nazarite. Now, what is a Nazarite? Well, basically, a Nazarite was just someone of the Jewish faith who was super religious. I mean, they were set apart for God, for God's purposes, in like an, an unbelievable way. And so a Nazarite would actually take three vows, and these vows would symbolize their dedication to God. The three vows were they wouldn't eat anything unclean, no unclean food, they wouldn't touch a drop of alcohol, and they would never shave the hair on their head. Those were the three Nazarite vows. And so Samson was declared to be this man who would be set apart for God, the deliverer of his people who were in... uh, oppression to the to the philistines who were their bitter enemy and so samson you kind of read this you think wow so samson was going to be this holy devout super religious guy that's kind of how his life was initially laid out well turns out his life was anything but holy devout or religious through the course of samson's life he ends up breaking all three of his Nazarite vows that would kind of symbolize his dedication to God. We read in Judges 16.1, I have it there for you, that one day Samson sees a prostitute, decides he wants to sleep with that prostitute. Not the kind of image you think of when you think about a man of God, a super holy religious guy. Uh, Also, Samson uh, was told, along with all of his other fellow Jewish brothers and sisters, that God had said to them, look, you are not supposed to marry outside of your faith. There's these neighboring tribes, and you're not to intermarry with the Philistines or any of these other groups of people because they'll corrupt your faith. They'll bring you down. So don't do that. God was very clear. So what does Samson do? Well, he sees a Philistine woman. He decides, I want that woman for my wife. 
So he decides he's going to have her. Well, it turns out that this woman that he marries, this sets off a chain reaction of events in his life where she turns out to be more loyal to her fellow Philistines than she is to Samson. And so uh, what happens is Samson has this bet, okay? And it's, it's a stupid bet just kind of made out of his own ego. And his wife actually causes him to lose the bet. And he's so furious with his wife over losing this bet that he goes out and in order to pay what he lost in the bet, he goes and he, he just goes postal and he murders 30 Philistines, strips them of their clothes. Imagine this, in cold blood, strips them of their clothes and uses those 30 articles of clothing to pay off his bet. Well, the bride's father is like, man, this guy is totally lost it. He's gone berserk. So she gives away Samson's wife to another guy. Well, now Samson just totally loses it. And so Samson basically goes through and he sets fire to the olive gardens and the vineyards and and the fields that the Philistines have, just sets the whole place on fire. He is totally lost it. He's just furious. So the Philistines in retaliation to Samson, they say, okay, you're going to do that to us? We'll kill that woman that you were in love with. So they kill his wife. Well, now Samson's just had it. And he just goes on an absolute rampage, a killing spree. He is so consumed with hate and anger and revenge toward these Philistines. And so he just, go, he just starts killing Philistines left and right. And the thing you need to know about Samson that kind of sets him apart from, from other leaders of his era is that he is blessed by God with this supernatural strength. Okay, and so he uses this strength, but he uses it just to exact all this hate and revenge on the Philistines. It gets so bad that the Israelites, okay, Samson's own people, they come and hunt Samson down. See, Samson's killing all these Philistines, and then he's like hiding out in caves and stuff. The is, and, and what's happening is, then the Philistines are taking it out on the Israelites. And so this man, Samson, this supposed to be holy, set-apart man of God who was going to deliver the Israelites, well, instead he's causing all kinds of problems for them because the Israelites are under Philistine rule. And so the Philistines are just giving it to the Israelites. The Israelites, they come looking for Samson, saying, come on, man, we're going to hand you over. We're going to hand you over. You're the cause of so many problems. You're not the deliverer. You're the troubler of Israel. But perhaps what Samson is most well known for, what we remember Samson, we associate a certain name with Samson. Her name is Delilah. Samson and Delilah. So, A little bit later on, Samson falls in love with this woman named Delilah. Again, not one of his own people, but another woman who was loyal to the Philistines. And basically, her whole mission in life was to try and find out what is the secret of your strength, Samson. And she manages to do that. She manages to find out from him that if his head gets shaved, he will lose that supernatural strength that God has given him. And so... When she finds this out, she calls in her fellow Philistines. They shave his head, and then it's a little graphic, but they actually gouge his eyes out. Okay? They gouge Samson's eyes out. They throw him into prison. And then what they do is they decide that at all their big events in like the huge palace, they'll, they'll bring him up and he'll be their entertainment. Now he has no more, no more strength left in him. So they'll basically just make a mockery of him. 
And that's what they do. That's kind of how his life ends. I I want us to check out these last few verses. This is Samson's final act. This is his last moment. And it is so telling. Just when you think about Samson, it really defines who he is in so many ways. So he's there, he's in the palace, and all the Philistine leaders are there, and they're all mocking him and laughing him, laughing at him. He's there just for their own entertainment. There he is blind, right? It says in Judges 16, verse 28, So then Samson prayed to the Lord. Check out this prayer. He says, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more, and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. It says, then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. What's so telling about this final act of Samson is that you notice that His last wish, his final request to God, okay? This is a man who has been called apart, called, set apart by God from the beginning to deliver his people. His dying request is not, oh God, you know, you've called me. Let me just do your will. You know, if if this is what you want, give me the strength to do your will, God, to carry this out. No, that's not his request, is it? His request isn't, you know, God, you, you called me to lead these people, my people. So, God, just, just let me to keep that in mind. I just, however, whatever I can do to be their deliverer, whatever I can do to, to be helpful to these people, to kind of to, to live out the calling that you've put on my life. Is that what he says? No. He says, God, let me with one blow get revenge on those Philistines from my two eyes. Do you see how completely self-absorbed Samson is? That's his whole life. He's thinking about no one other than himself. He's not thinking about God and God's call on his life. He's not thinking about his fellow Israelites. He's just consumed with hate and vengeance toward the Philistines. As you look at Samson's life, or at least as I have looked at it, these chapters 13 through 16, I cannot find one single redeeming quality about this man. Not one. Actually, there is one. I'll take that back. And the one redeeming quality, the only thing you can see, is that God chose him. He was chosen by God. That's the only redeeming quality that he's got. That's for whatever reason, God chose him. And so, as Samson lived out his train wreck of a life, that was just filled with a litany of mistakes and just, I mean, just bloodshed and anger and vengeance and selfishness and impulsiveness. As he lived this out, for some crazy reason, God in his sovereignty chose to use this train wreck of a man to carry out his purposes, to deliver his people, the Israelites, from these oppressive Philistines. So, Let's return to the question that I wanted you guys to be thinking about as you hear this description of Samson. Why in the world would God choose this man? Why in the world would he choose Samson to deliver his people? 
Samson is about the furthest thing you could possibly imagine from a man of God. He's the complete opposite of holiness and goodness and righteousness and unselfishness and all the other qualities that we would just logically expect for the leader of this group of people to have. So why? Why did God choose Samson? You want my honest answer to that? Honestly, I have no idea. Because this choice of Samson makes absolutely zero sense to me, anyway. Makes no sense. Not the person that I would have chosen if I were in God's seat. Samson's actually probably the last person that I would have ever expected God to choose to lead his people out of this situation. But here's the thing, you guys. And if you want to fill this in, this is the one point I want you to really think about today. God is not limited by my logic. Our God is not limited by our logic. See, God's primary concern in his redemptive activity in this world is not whether it makes sense to me and to you. That's not God's primary overarching concern. God's not limited by my logic. I brought in a little something for show and tell, and I know some of you saw this box and you were hoping that I'm bringing back the, the, um, the Boom Boom box from the Smoking Hot series on sex. This is not the Boom Boom box, okay? I know, it's very disappointing. Sorry. It's okay. It's okay. You can be upset about it. This is my God box. This is my God box. This is kind of a physical description of what I try and do mentally in my mind to wrap my head around an infinite, almighty being that we know as God. Something that's beyond our understanding. So what I try and do is based on my life and what's happened in my life, I try and kind of construct, well, what, what is God like and what is God not like? You know, wh- wh- what kind of things would God do and what kind of things would God not do, which just wouldn't ever fit inside the box. And so as a product of, of my experiences, as a product of, of talking to people who've, who've tried to teach me about God, my parents, friends, maybe Sunday school teachers, um, hearing sermons about God, from what I've read in the Bible about who God is, and then from my own experiences in terms of, you know, times that I've, I've been in need and I've cried out and I've prayed and maybe something's happened or different things have happened in my life, these all go into forming what kind of becomes this God box for me. And my God box through the years is kind of defined by terms like love and truth and grace and mercy and justice. And so over time, I formed this box in my mind. And this box helped me to understand there's certain things that I know God is, and there's certain things that they're outside the box. That's not who God is. God, God wouldn't do that. God couldn't do that sort of a thing. Okay? Now, this is something that is a perfectly normal, natural thing that we do. It's our attempt to try and understand things and concepts that are just 
far beyond what we can. So we do our best to kind of construct a box like this. And that's great. So long as we never fall into the trap of thinking that we can perfectly fit almighty God into a nice little box. We can try and gain some understanding, but God will never be reduced to a box. God will never be reduced to some sort of formula. We've just totally got God figured out and his ways understood. God just doesn't work that way. He will not be limited by our human logic, by our human expectations of how God should act. Now, here's a question I want to ask you. What does your God box look like? For me, I I fall into this temptation where I just love to have this nice, neat, orderly, all taped up. I got God all figured out. This just helps me to feel better about my relationship with God and my understanding of God. How about you? What does your God box look like? Have you just duct taped the heck out of that thing, man? Like, is it perfectly solid and good and airtight and you just got, you got all the answers? You got it all figured out. It always just makes sense. God's simple. It's easy to understand God. What does your box look like? There are some of you here this morning, probably many of you, and when you think about your God box, you actually don't have that much of a problem with Samson. You're like, yeah, Samson, yeah, he was a little, he's a little bit of an interesting choice for God. I give you that. But that doesn't really mess with you, okay? You actually can kind of throw Samson, and somehow Samson kind of, you can make sense of Samson, okay? Maybe God was just really upset and, you know, whatever, okay? But for for many of you who are here this morning, God's choice of Samson pales in comparison to something that completely defies logic and is so far outside of your God box that you can't possibly put it in. You want to know what that is for many of you? It's this notion that God Almighty, creator of everything we see, one day decided to take on human form and come down to this earth and live among us. Not to come and like be some sort of crazy warrior type who would like rid the world of evil and sin. But for you, what just defies logic is that the God of the universe would take the form of a man named Jesus Christ, and then to top that all off, he wouldn't come to overthrow everything, but instead would come to humbly serve and suffer and die. And that would be the plan that God would use to redeem his people. That that is the way that God would would say, yeah, that's how this is going to go down. For, for many of you here this morning, that just totally blows your mind. You're like, yeah, I, I can conceive in God and being so, super powerful and love and all this stuff, but God coming down in human form, Jesus Christ was actually God, man, that just completely blows up my box. I, I just cannot wrap my mind around that concept right there. Well, I want to tell you something. If that's how you feel, I feel you. Because it was just a few years ago for me, that I was in that exact place. Where I was just, I, I, this just doesn't, how, how is this possible? It, it, it just doesn't compute. And if anyone's ever tried to tell you, or maybe they've just given you the feeling that, oh, it's just, it's really simple. It's just Jesus, he died on a cross, you just believe in him and you go to heaven. It's just, it's great. 
And if everyone just kind of made you feel like, man, that's just so, so easy. You know, how can you not see it? It just fits right in the box. It's just who God is. Let me tell you something. It's not. And the Bible actually tells us that this is an incredibly difficult concept to wrap our minds around. I want us to look at 1 Corinthians 1.18. It says, for the message of the cross. Okay, that's the message of Jesus Christ died on a cross for our sins so that we would be made righteous in the eyes of God purely just by believing in faith that he did what none of us could do, live the perfect life, okay? So it says the message of the cross is foolishness. That's what the Bible says. It says it's foolishness to those who are perishing. So to those of us who haven't yet wrapped our minds around this thing, and there are many of us at Grace in this spot, we're just like, you know, I believe in God, but this whole Jesus thing, I don't know about that yet, okay? To you, when you're thinking about that, this is crazy, Okay, it just is. And if you're here and you put your faith in Christ when you were like seven years old, God bless you, okay? That's amazing, okay? That's an incredible thing. But don't for a second think that just because it makes sense to you because your box has been redefined, that it makes sense to those who haven't come to that conclusion. It doesn't. In fact, it's completely mind-blowingly crazy to think that God would come down as a person and die on a cross. It just doesn't compute for people who haven't made that jump. So it says it's foolishness. So those of us who don't understand, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's amazing, amazing stuff. Job 11, 7 and 8 says this about God. Just kind of want to challenge you with this verse as you think about your God box, how you see God, how you try to kind of put everything into nice, neat little categories when it comes to God. It says this, can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens above. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths below. What can you know? What the Bible tells us here and in many other places is that God is a divine mystery. God will not be limited by our human logic, our human understanding. Now, there are many of you, and your big thing you're wrestling with, the thing that just doesn't fit into your God box, is Jesus. It's this idea of God coming down in human flesh. It just does not compute. It's just, it seems foolish, utterly foolish and crazy. Okay? But there are others of us in this room, and we're cool with that. I mean, we've got that one, and our box has been kind of reshaped, remade, whatever. But we still struggle in other ways with God. Maybe you're here this morning and you think about your God box and you're like, yeah, you know, I can believe a lot of this stuff. And I I know that God did miracles and has done many incredible things. I read about them in the Bible. And maybe I've even heard some stories about some friends or people that, you know, God has done some miraculous things in their life. But you know, that's just not the way God works in my life. God would never do that in my life. I mean, I've been afflicted for so long with this, this thing that God would, God just, I just know, I just know that God would never work that way in my life. You might say, you know, I know God calls a lot of people to do amazing things for him, and that's awesome, but God would never do that in my life. 
God would never call me to something like that. That's just, it's just no way. I mean, God just doesn't work that way in my life anyway. Or, you know, I know that God issued forgiveness to the whole world. That's what this whole gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. But there's certain things in my life that I don't know that God could ever forgive. Some of you, this idea of just total, utter forgiveness and grace, it doesn't fit into your box. For you, that's just not the way God works. It's not what God does. I want to challenge you. What does your God box look like? What are the limitations that you, based on your experience, based on your understanding, what are the human limitations and things where you say, God goes this far, but God goes no more? Are you completely boxing God in? Because God will never be confined to our box. Ephesians 3.20 says these words. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Did you catch those first few words? This is amazing stuff. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or even imagine. Did you catch that? God can do more than we can even fathom in our wildest imagination. He can do more, immeasurably more than that. God will not be confined to our human understanding. There are times when God is going to blow your mind. And if God never blows your mind, then you probably don't know God as well as you thought you did. I don't know that God would be God if God never blew our mind. Okay? God will not be confined to a box. He will not be limited by our logic. Let's pray. God, uh, we thank you for um, difficult passages of the Bible. We thank you for Samson and the fact that this guy was such a mess. I mean, it just does not make sense that you would pick him to be the one who would lead your people out of this situation. God, I don't get that at all. But God, we thank you that you're God and we're not. And although we strive to figure you out and, and, and we love to try and do that, and God, we know that you honor that search. God, we can never, never reduce you to a formula. We can never box you in. God, each of us constructs a box when we try and think about who you are and who you're not. Lord, and... I just ask that you would forgive me for the times I place my limitations on you. There are some of us here and we are struggling with just the idea that that there's any way that you would ever, ever come down to this earth as a human being and do what you did. It just, it's way outside of our box. We can't grasp it. Help us to wrestle with that. Give us some humility as we search. 
For others of us that have stopped believing that you can deliver us from a situation or you can do some sort of miraculous intervention in our life or you can forgive us of something that we've done in our past or that you would even think us worthy to be called and to do something great for you. God, just remind us, blow apart our box. I pray, God, that you would continue to blow our minds. I believe that's what you're in the business of doing. So, God, wherever we are, wherever we are, just just meet us there. Open up that box for us. Help us to see beyond what we can see. Lord, um, I'm just going to conclude this service with this last song, God, about your amazing grace. There are many here, God, who are where I was just a few short years ago. Just couldn't conceive of your plans, of, of the way that you would choose to redeem this world. It's so, it's just so illogical. Lord, help us as we sing out this song. Just remember that your ways are higher than our ways, that you can do immeasurably more than we could dare to ask or even imagine. We thank you, God, for being an awesome God who would never, ever, be able to be put in a box. That's not who you are, God. And we thank you for that. We worship you in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.